Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com slash Changelog. Move fast and fix things like we do here at Changelog. Catch your errors before your users do with Rollbar. If you're not using Rollbar yet or you haven't tried it yet, they have a special offer for you. Go to Rollbar.com slash Changelog. Sign up and integrate Rollbar to get $100 to donate to open source projects via Open Collective. Once again, Rollbar.com slash Changelog. Welcome back. You're listening to the Change Logo podcast featuring the hackers, the leaders, and the innovators of software development. I'm Adam Stakoviak, editor in chief here at Change Log. Today, Jared and I are talking with Dominic Tarr, creator of EventStream, the I.O. library that made recent news as the latest malicious package in the NPM registry. EventStream was turned malware, designed to target a very specific development environment, and harvest account details and private keys from Bitcoin accounts. We talked through Dominic's backstory as a prolific contributor to open source, his stance on this package, his work in open source, the sequence of events around this hack, how he can and should handle maintainership of open source infrastructure over the full life cycle of the code's usefulness, and what some best practices are for moving forward from this kind of attack. So we're here in the wake and and aftermath of a event stream malware incident that happened uh, to the open source community, to the NPM community, to the JavaScript community, and to Dominic uh, himself, the maintainer of the repository and former NPM package. Maintainer. Former maintainer. Yes, <laughs> thank you for correcting me. Please correct us as we go here, as there's lots of details and we're definitely going to probably slip on up on some of them. But uh, for those uh, who weren't on the internets um, on, on and around November 26th, 2018, um, we will recall some of the events that happened to catch everybody up and get us all on the same page. So there is a uh, repository and package called EventStream, which was created by Dominic Tarr and maintained up until recently by him, um, which had an issue opened on November 20th of this year by a fella goes by Falling Snow. I think his name is Ayrton Sparling. Probably mis- mispronounced, but the best I can do there. And he was uh, wondering what had happened to this repo and why uh, specific access was given to a, a GitHub user by the name of Write9Control or Write9CTRL. Um, he had found some issues there and was asking about it. And uh, it turns out that this person injected some malware into the NPM package, a specific version of EventStream, which was used by uh, many folks. And that was very problematic. Now, this caused all sorts of uh, confusion, conversation, some yelling, some nice things. It caused a lot of uh, discussion on Monday and some actions. Um, Thankfully, NPM acted pretty quickly and the package was removed the morning of November 26th. The initial incident was about a week earlier, but didn't really hit too much of the zeitgeist 
until Monday. Dominic's here with us. Dominic uh, made a statement on, on November 26th. And uh, we're here to talk about that and talk about the, the aftermath, you know, what causes these problems, really open source the community and the culture writ large because there's huge implications and lots of fun stuff. So that's my summary. Uh, Adam, Dominic, please, please hop in and help me out there or fix any things I had wrong and we can get going. Yeah, so um, I woke up that morning to like a friend telling me that um, that issue had been like posted all over the internet and I might want to block it or something. And I was actually quite uh, excited because I thought that that issue brought to light, um, brought to attention like quite important uh, issues for open source, which so I made a like, see, everyone was like very excited about it. So I, I, made, I made a, um, a statement about it, but I think I'd like to explain like how everything um, like fell into place. I wrote this, um, the event stream module when I, I wrote like, like seven years ago. And at that time, um, like Node.js, like Node.js is now um, like hugely popular. Like there was, like now there's like hundreds of thousands of modules in the, in the, um, on NPM um, back then, tens of, it was like tens of thousands. I'd been involved with Node since there was, I remember when, when, there were a thousand packages in the in NPM, <laughs> and that and that being like celebrated, like as a big as a big, big thing. deal, yeah. And uh, so, Eventstream was like of that era, and it was like I just I had um, like I went on to write a huge number of like streaming of stream related modules, and then um, and Eventstream was actually the very first one that I wrote, and I wrote it, and then after like about. I think it was 11 months of like stream experience. I realized that event stream was kind of the wrong basis. And I wrote a thing called through, which became the basis for all of my streams stuff after that. And so even by that point, so that was like six years ago, I had basically moved on from um, event stream and wasn't really interested in uh, like, I wasn't using it as like my first go-to thing for writing streams anymore. And then like another, maybe like a year or two after that, the, like node core team decided they were going to like fix all the problems with um streams and create streams too and i hadn't i hadn't managed to like participate in any of these discussions on like what was going to go on streams too because it was all at this like node conference in california and i you know i wasn't i wasn't there and when i saw like what they wanted to add i was like this is like horribly like bloated and ugly but it was also backwards compatible, which like made it like twice as bad. And so mm. I started like I tried to like I t- tried some mild protesting, and they were just like, "Oh, we really decided you know really decided that this is how we're going to do it." And that sort of spurred me to be like, "Well, if you were going to really make a really minimal efficient stream thing that wasn't um, backwards compatible with the current streams, what would it look like?" And uh, I started experimenting, and with you know me and some friends and stuff, I came up with um, pull stream. And full stream is like really like minimal, like it's, you just have two functions. One function is like just a normal node async function that you call it repeatedly, like one at a time. And um, the other, so that's like, you have a readable uh, function and then you have a reader function, which is a function that the readable was passed to. And um, I've got detailed blog posts about both the, the history of Node.js streams and full streams. So you can, those are on. Uh, uh, dominictar.com but the um point is like post stream was like i decided this was actually so much better it solved several of the like problems that node streams had like had like error propagation so like 
if an error occurs somewhere in the stream, it like cleans up and aborts the whole stream and you end up getting the, you know, you know that the stream ended in an error. And it was like for just moving like data about like you did with event stream, it was just like much more minimal and lightweight and yeah. efficient and I'm benchmarks that it was like faster and stuff like this. Even though I hadn't really tried to optimize it, I had just written less code. So I had like fully moved on by that point. It was like, this thing is great. Um, and I've really tried to promote uh, full streams. Some like people, some people cottoned on and there's like a, a pretty good community of people that use it. But anyway, by the time, like that was also several years ago. So I had like completely moved on from event stream uh, like twice. <laughs> Yeah, not only had you stopped, you know, working on it and maintaining it, but you had you had replaced it with, uh, you know, the things that you consider much better quality, the way to go. So, I mean, this was like in your mind, this this particular package was ancient history, right? Yeah, and it was like at that point, it it wasn't like like really popular yet. I think it became uh, popular when Gulp used it. So Gulp was. I mean, Sculpt still, I never used, I never used Gulp. Um, it's like a build tool. It's kind of like Make or something like that. You know, it's for building all of your project and stuff like that. And, you know, I just felt that JavaScript didn't really need one of those. But anyway, Gulp happened and got uh, pretty big and it used event stream. And the first version used event stream and it's like example documentation and stuff. So that's when it actually became more popular. But that was after I had already moved on to Pullstreams, funnily enough. So. So you moved on twice, then it became popular and you're still moved on from this project. Like yeah. from a, from how you use it, it's usefulness to you, not so much just the project, but how it's usefulness to you, like how you use it to develop, to develop applications or using your tools and tool chain, but grunt made it popular grunt gulp, all those. I'm not sure if grunt may have used it or Did not, I but say, they were all in. No, you said, you said gulp. I said, grunt. Like grunt. yeah, it's gulp. <laughs> gulp. They all run together to me. Grunt, gulp, all in the same era of like this events as streams to build things era prior to Webpack becoming more and more popular and things changing. So the the real interesting thing about the situation is that the the compromise or the the injection of this this code didn't come from hacking GitHub's permissions or npm js.com. It was really a a third party who came to you on a uh, a project that, like you said, you moved on from twice. This is the right nine control uh, user on GitHub, which is no longer a user on GitHub, of course, a malicious actor, and it must have been acting like a normal person and obtained credentials to this repository basically by asking for them, and then used that access to basically he or she added. Um, according to Falling Snow, flat map stream, which has an injection in it, uh, very, very briefly added it, published a new version, and then took it out um, in order to kind of cover their tracks and um, leave the actual installed version, of course, on as many computers as possible. Right. And, and so that's really the bigger picture of this is like, this was an interesting, unfortunate situation. Um, but one that is like very difficult for you to see coming, right? So tell us about this, you know, maintainer that you added. And I know you're kind of working your way there with this story of how EventStream is like outside of your own mind and use. 
Um, tell us about that decision. Was it a long time ago? Was it recently? Was it? Uh, know? well, there was like, um, start of September. It was like a few months. It was only a few months ago. Okay. And so I hadn't like my maintenance of event stream was basically like ignoring it. I hadn't made any like feature changes in like five years. Like basically I just like, if anyone made a feature change, I'd, I'd tell them to publish it as a module. Let me throw out a couple of stats about Dominic, because um, I doubt he would say these things himself in order to boast. But um, if, you, if you're thinking about Dominic Tars, make me perhaps like EventStream was, you know, one of his, a couple packages he's written. How could you ignore this thing that you toiled over? Dominic, Dominic has, uh, at the time of this call, 628 source repos on GitHub. That means those are non-forks. He actually created those repositories. And 422 packages published on NPM under his name. Um, in November alone, Dominic, according to GitHub's activity, you've done 257 commits on 33 repositories in November. Um, so pr I would call that prolific in your open source work and product. So uh, EventStream at this point was an old package that you wrote, a thing that you moved on from twice. And it's not like it's, you've got the six packages that you care for. It's like you have hundreds of packages and so like you said the maintenance on that was you were basically ignoring it yeah and like none of my friends used it um either like it was basically just things that like like so i would occasionally get like you know issues or support or emails because of it and i was like these are all just like annoying and but it was just like i wish like i wish this would go away and then someone like emailed me and was like hey uh this I, this was useful to me do you want to you, you know can I, I could spend a few hours a week like maintaining it. And I was like, hell yes. Like I jumped at the chance. Like, please, <laughs> like, please yeah. you know, thank you so much. Like you've actually like, you're the first person who's actually offered to help. So I gave it to them. Um, so, and then the, this is like a critical thing that really like ended up exasperating the, um, the whole situation is that then like in between then and now, uh, maybe a month later, I was like, I had the, you know, I had a whole bunch of other old modules that I was like no longer really interested in um, that I didn't use. And um, occasionally people would post issues and make pull requests and stuff like this. And it was always like a huge bummer for someone to like earnestly come looking for like help or want to merge, you know, or make some change or something like this. And then, you know, this would require me to like probably think about the implications of their change or something like this for like mm -hmm. at least like 20 minutes or something. And I no longer just like, like I moved on from all of these things and it was just kind of like a, a huge bummer to like tell them like, look, I'm, I just can't be bothered. Like I'm just not interested in, in working on this. Like, and it was like not the, like the 20 minutes or something. It was just the like letting some stranger like down that hard. Mm. Um, that was like, that was actually, I realized that that was what was getting to me. And then because I have hundreds of modules, I had to like, I thought I wanted to like disown in um, bulk. So I've actually um, written like more like 700 and something modules. And like in between handing off event stream and now I like disowned uh, like 340 of them. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I wanted to do it in a way that I would no longer have access to them. So mm -hmm. I created a, uh, an email and then used a random password that I forgot and then used that to sign up for another NPM account called uh, No Persons Modules. And then I uh, forgot the password to that as well. So I can't log into these things. And then I transferred like hundreds of modules to that account, 
which now no one controls. So I told, I emailed uh, NPM support and told them I was doing this as well for like, um, wow. like based mental health reasons. Drastic measures. Yeah, but I but it was quite uh, cathartic to just be like these, like uh, no longer my responsibility. And the things that I still retain control of are the things that I actually use, and like directly or indirectly. Mostly, maybe there's a few things I could clean up as well. But and then there were a couple of cases where someone i had added someone else as a publisher as well and so if someone else was already a publisher i just removed myself from those modules and um event stream fell into this category where i already someone else seemed to be an active maintainer and at that point they seemed to be legitimately maintaining event stream so i was just like okay that's under control and i'll just like you know so i no longer had access to it and by the time they report the, the attack i was like Sorry, I, I actually can't help you. Like, I don't have I don't have ac- access to this module anymore. Was this recently then this this cathartic moment for you? Because you said that uh, control what was it? Uh, what's the person name? Right, right, right nine control, control. Right, right nine uh, control. Reached out a few months ago and asked you for commit bits so that they can help you maintain. You gave it to them. So was this cathartic moment you're talking about where you did this? You know, deliberate. Yeah, it, it was something like a three, like a couple of weeks after that or something like okay. that. Okay. Yeah, basically it was a coincidence, but there was basically a coincidence of timing. Like I think if if I hadn't have done that, then I then when someone reported this thing, I would have been like, okay, well we'll just like unpublish that version, remove you know this weird thing and stuff like that. I probably never would have made the news because it would have been like dealt with in that issue, right? Um, but because I had like forcibly like I'd locked myself out of it. That's interesting. Yeah, then you really couldn't go and see the day. This was like a perfect storm. And let me just say that it was a pretty sophisticated social engineering uh, attack because that's really what it is, right? Like we talk about hacking into computers and whatnot. And we realize over time, go all the way back to Kevin Mitnick, like the best crackers are the ones that just ask for permit, just ask for your password or act like they're somebody else and get, get a password. Most people are were very forward with with information, and and this was a situation where this person picked really a a, a prime repository where you know it hasn't been active. Probably the issues were building up. You can tell when somebody's ignoring one of their repositories um, just by doing a little bit of research. And then uh, not only that, but so deployed, right? Which you can probably see via like npm download stats, you know, on builds and stuff. How many? Um, downloads of this particular package uh, in the last month, and then um, you know really weaselled their way in. So it's it's so interesting that you know why we found out about this. First of all, I think Falling Snow is like a saint. Uh, I love people like so. Thanks Falling Snow for you know doing this. I don't know what you were doing uh, necessarily, poking around and finding this thing, but uh, shedding light on these things. But then also the fact, Dominic, that you had removed your own access from NPM, and so there was. This, there's really nothing you could do. Like this was going to have to be brought into the light. And so here we have it. Yeah. But I, th- I think um, one thing important to note is that the attack that right nine control was like trying to pull off um, was actually a very targeted attack. Like it was only, it only actually affected a specific Bitcoin wallet that I understand hadn't actually been like fully released or something yet. Hmm. So it, it didn't actually end up doing any like attack, ma- massive damage. It ended up failing completely. Like mm. the, the damage was all um, basically people's time got wasted because they had to like remove the the code. I wonder if they were targeting a specific person that they knew used Event Stream or something. Of course, that's all just 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah they sure. were. It was this. Um, no, we, it's quite obvious who they were targeting because their um, the malicious payload was encrypted, and the key to the encryption was the wallet. Yeah, it was. It was the name of the wallet thing. It was like it goes oh. into environment variable that is set when it's run inside an app. And so when they they found that there was some suspicious encrypted material in the minified file, but they had to like go through every single module that depended on event stream until they found the one that it actually decrypted the the thing. So it was like um, they had to just try thousands of things until they discovered that it was this Bitcoin wallet. Of course, by the time that they had noticed that there was some encrypted thing inside the minified content and not inside the regular content, then um, obviously there was something, something was up and they didn't know exactly what was the thing. Um, although n- now in hindsight, you know, next time this happens, like some Bitcoin wallets, probably a pretty obvious guess. That's interesting. I didn't realize that uh, they had figured out that that much. I think I also want to point out just the, the highlights of the, of the community uh, with people like Falling Snow, but also the others, like you mentioned, so many people digging into the code and really the reverse engineers come out right and do all their sherlock holmes work to to figure these things out it's really quite amazing how fast and successful they are at uh tracing the the trail here also what's up with right nine control don't they know that bitcoin is crashing right now like come on what's the deal (laughs) the value is way down i think uh they started working on um on this hack before it crashed as well if we could just get all cryptos to go back to zero then maybe we'd have less uh Less problems like these out in the world. Yeah, the analysis of a supply chain attack from Hayden Parker uh, laid some of this out in terms of the backdoor would only be activated if the code was included in BitPay's open source wallet called Copay or any forks that did not modify their project's description. So they're what, like, uh, you know, like Dominic is saying, it's very targeted. I think one thing that I'm seeing here that's kind of interesting, and correct me if I'm wrong, is like, you know, GitHub and NPM are not a one-to-one. You know, so it seemed like the this person was able to deploy this sort of undetected in a way because they had done some merges on GitHub and then undone their work and did a deploy or something like that to NPM. And so NPM and GitHub are out of sync, which I'm sure is very common to to be a case. But I'm wondering if that's not a line for security vulnerability whenever something that is on github in source code does not somehow match you know as a code repository you know place doesn't match npm the the you know the final build built module you know what what do you guys think about that the the misnomer there the the anomaly the fact that they're not connected or they're not the same there is a number of ways that this particular attack could have been systematically prevented or made uh, a lot more difficult to pull off or a lot easier to um, identify. And one of those is, you know, you check that there's a deterministic, that the the build product is deterministic from the source product. So the minified version of the code, like if someone else minifies the same code, it should produce the same result. Right. And if the unminified thing didn't include the encrypted stuff, then the output shouldn't include it. So this, a simple thing that you could do to like prevent this kind of thing is, uh, at least that would have detected this thing. Let's say there's this tool that you install your dependency tree, then you run this thing and it goes through all of the dependency tree, clones all of the repos, um, builds them all, and then checks that what it, you've installed is actually exactly the same, like, by, like down to a byte, um, as what was built. And if something is anything is different at all then you like flag the you know you'll be like that's something right. not, there's something non 
fantastic. Yeah. Even from a maintainer's level, like a maintainer isn't going to catch this unless they have the right kind of tooling because no maintainer, I'm not going to say, well, maybe not no maintainer, but not many maintainers are going to confirm that what is on NPM is what I was on GitHub. And especially if it's, you know, minified or whatever, like who's going to take that measure to ensure that, Hey, I'm going to give commit access to this person. And I'm going to assume that they're not malicious because the previous commits, whatever, like they're just not going to do that level of like vetting. We need tooling in place to sort of, as you said, systematically catch this kind of exploit because GitHub did not match NPM in this case. Yeah. And like this, this has been uh, this issue of deterministic builds is sort of hasn't been on the radar, I think, until now um, of like the JavaScript community, but has is something that so like Debian has spent the last couple of years moving to like every Debian package, which is mostly like compiled C, C++, et cetera, uh, is like fully deterministic now. So it means if two people build the same, like compile the same program, then the built uh, output will be exactly the same. So if you have like multiple trusted independent people building something and one of them is different, then you know that there's something up and possibly it's a Trojan inside of the compiler. Because uh, this was like an attack like described like in the early 90s, you know, by the creators of Unix, the trusting trust attack, mm-hmm. um, which is it's, it's like it's pretty famous, but but also like generally like no one had actually used it to do anything malicious um, that anyone was aware of, although there had been a benign Trojan inside of GCC for some years where it was just like something that when you compiled it, it went into the it would insert itself into the out- compiled output and never appeared in the source code. And then when you comp- use that to compile the next version of GCC, it inserted itself and it didn't do anything bad. It was just, I guess it, it was probably just a funny prank. Perhaps good moment, Adam, to once again pro- cross-promote an old episode we did, reproducible mm-hmm. builds and secure software with Chris Lamb. We talked to Chris Lamb all about his work with reproducible builds and how that's going into the Debian and Ubuntu uh, distributions back in February of 2017, so a couple of years ago. But man, that was a prescient show because uh, it's come on up so much lately. As these are definitely things that uh, people are starting to realize are super important because we're we're having uh, fallout from not having that as a feature of our package management tools. So go back and listen to that. We'll put that in the show notes if that is of interest to you. This episode is brought to you by Linode, our cloud server of choice. It's so easy to get started. Head to linode.com changelog. Pick a plan, pick a distro, and pick a location, and in minutes, deploy your Linode cloud server. They have drool-worthy hardware, native SSD cloud storage, 40 gigabit network, Intel E5 processors, simple, easy control panel, 99.9% uptime guaranteed. We are never down. 24-7 customer support, 10 data centers, three regions, anywhere in the world they got you covered. Head to linode.com slash changelog to get $20 in hosting credit. That's four months free. Once again, linode.com slash changelog. talking about ways that 
these kinds of attacks can be prevented down the road. Systematic things we can do. Or maybe we can't do them. Maybe certain platforms have to do them. Certainly maintainers have things that we can do. But you mentioned the reprodu- or the deterministic builds or reproducible builds. Um, but you also have some other things that could be features of our systems that would help from this kind of attack happening. You want to elaborate on those, Dominic? Yeah, well, so firstly, I'm not a high, like reproducible builds might have made it easier to detect. Like re- reproducible builds would have flagged this, but he might have gone to like if they had like checked in the malicious code and said like maybe no one would have noticed like once it once it was apparent that it was like that there was some encrypted code that was being run it was like something is definitely very suspicious but if it had been unencrypted that might have actually been like more effective like we don't really know um it could it could have been overkill to encrypt it and so that would have actually gotten past a reproducible build because Mm. the, the bad would have been just hiding in plain sight and the other thing is that the attack depended on the event stream code doing several things that, uh, well, rather the flat map code doing several things that really had no business doing. So to like successfully um, steal people's Bitcoin keys, then send them back to the attacker, it needs to do network IO. And event stream itself like didn't like didn't need to do that. Like that is completely outside the stated purpose of mm. event stream. The same with um, like accessing the crypto module and that sort of stuff. So if there was like a specific list of what um, permissions on a module basis that um, that you could request from yeah that event that that a module depended on. So modules so event stream was like it doesn't do any IO. It doesn't do any like networking or file access. It just glues other things together. Then com- compromising event stream wouldn't have wouldn't have been useful for this attack. You would have to compromise something else that had access. And then of course it also it monkey patched the constructor of something that did that. Then it got the keys from. And you had like a good sandboxing thing. I wouldn't be have been able to do that. Um, I'd sort of been aware of this stuff being developed for for some years. This is thing called like e writes which is like quite old, this guy, uh, Mark Miller, who was also the chief architect on the Xanadu project. Are you familiar with, with Xanadu? Mm-mm-mm. Oh, this is like, this is really getting into the, um, this is something you should definitely know about. Maybe you should do like a, 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 a whole podcast on it. So this guy, Ted Nelson, basically had this idea for the World Wide Web, but better. And it had like versioning built in and you had this thing called Transclusion where like a link, like just embedded other documents and stuff. But, but the thing is he had this idea in the 1960s and then spent like several decades trying to develop it. And by the time that the web came along, the, the first release of the web from Tim Berners-Lee mm-hmm. cited Xanadu and was like, I wish Xanadu was ready, but, but given that it isn't, here's a, like a crappy version of the idea that I cobbled together. And the sort of project Xanadu was like a far, far more ambitious idea that, you know, it actually inspired a lot of people but failed to deliver any usable software. Um, you know, it's quite, the history of it is quite amazing because it, it like, it did have like a quite a big impact in terms of ideas, but it didn't successfully deliver anything. But it still was like instrumental in like actually creating the web, but it was just actually the, the creators of Xanadu was like, the web is actually like a really disappointing like crappy version of what we were trying to do. I found Project Xanadu on, on Wikipedia reading a little bit along, and I agree this would make a great show to do separately. But uh, what's interesting is that there was a working deliverable called Open Xanadu that was released uh, in 2014. Um, it was called Open because you can see all the parts. 
So not necessarily open source, but just open to see. On the site, the creators claim that Tim Berners-Lee stole their idea and that the <laughs> World Wide Web is a bizarre structure created by arbitrary initiatives of varied people and has a terrible programming language. And the web is a complex maze. I'm not sure if this was uh, Mark Miller doing this or somebody that was inspired by Mark Miller's work on Xanadu, but super interesting. And this is just Wikipedia, by the way, so take it for what it's worth. So Mark Miller was the chief architect, but the Xanadu project was started by um, Ted Nelson. I actually you know, had the privilege of meeting Mark Miller a few months ago as well. And uh, like I had been aware of his work like in e-writes like since then, which was basically the idea was he was trying to build a, a programming language that had it was like optimized for security auditing. Like you could tell, you could definitely say that like this part can only access these things. And unless something has been passed into it, it can't interfere with that other thing in any way at all. And there's this old website that explains this. And it looks like all really excellent ideas that for mainstream computing, which is like basically being completely ignorant of any uh, of security. Like it's security is just like a huge pain in the butt for Mm -hmm. most people. They had like envisioned like this is how we could solve all of you know these problems and be working on it this this for like decades now. But interestingly in the meantime they had actually infiltrated Google and had managed to add several features to JavaScript that enabled JavaScript to have all the pieces of the puzzle to create this in JavaScript. Who's um, they? You said they infiltrated Google. You're talking about Mark Miller? Yeah, Mark Miller. Infiltrated perhaps is the wrong word, but he worked at Google for sure. years. And I understand it was, um, what's the, who's the other JavaScript guy? Douglas. Frog Crockford. Crockford, yeah, yeah, yeah. Crockford had like been like, you know, JavaScript is like nearly has all of the features you need to make this secure thing. So this produced, I think this is my understanding, strict mode and object.freeze. And so now left Google is working at this thing, uh, Agoric, which has produced now a thing, uh, secure ECMAScript, SES. And there's a bunch of like versions that are more or less constrained or something like this, but it gives you a pure JavaScript way. Like you don't need like a special platform. So you don't need to change the background. Like this already works in like a web browser and you could block off some code. So you couldn't have to completely use a like user provided code that then runs in a context that you can be confident it's not touching other things so it can't it can't do things like prototypes and it can't it can't do anything it can't use things that haven't been passed to it directly you know many people will point out that getting sandboxing right is like extremely difficult and that's like absolutely true but luckily these people have been like literally spent their careers working on this so who would be the people that would tasked with working on something like this are we talking about uh, browser vendors at node are we talking about package managers like where would the sandboxing and the the application of these principles go so adding it to um an actual like deployed application that was originally created without this stuff in mind so like currently written code and applications and they're running and with npm and stuff today someone would have to um, decide, I guess, what APIs things have access to and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. it'd be easier to start fresh. Well, I think it could actually be added like in user space. You might have to go through and be like, this thing can have these permissions or not. Well, you mentioned earlier that uh, it didn't need IO access, right? So that would be an easy one. So if ever this module ever requested or used IO, then, it, you know, something is very odd about its behavior because it's described behavior says that it shouldn't certain shouldn't use certain APIs or certain feature sets, essentially. 
Yeah, and for the most part, unless they do something like really weird and dynamic, probably 95% of modules would be like an easy call to see what they should be able to or shouldn't be able to access. But, you know, you can just weed out dependencies that like do weird stuff. So as the attacker, though, let's say I have what right nine control I had, I have access to the source code as well as the you know, deployment mechanism. Even in this world where there is this sandbox, could I not simply, I mean, I would have to provide the whitelist as the author of event stream. So would I not just add IO to my list of things that I require and then deploy? Maybe you could have at that point some sort of like this permissions have changed. Do you want to allow this to do that right, kind of a gosh, thing? Yeah, what a world. Yeah, I think it would be a good improvement. Like Android phones or et cetera have this kind of permission system. And right. um, yeah, I think most people just like click okay. So exactly. It would be, it yeah. would be We're pushing the attack vector up the stack to the end user who's more likely to not even know what the heck it's talking about and say yes. Yeah. But on the other hand, if when you install a module, if you made the call then and it was actually controlled, because you end up things with like BitPay didn't actually install event stream. They installed something that installed something that installed event, event stream. Right. So when you install something, you say like, oh, that should never do such and such. Then it's sort of a basically a question of like, who do you trust? And perhaps if you were something like a high, high value target, such as a, a, a Bitcoin wallet, then you would just go through the entire tree and be like, what should this be able to access? What should this be able to access? Which like might take you like, you know, a while if you have hundreds of modules, but it would definitely like give you peace of mind and be like an appropriate action and would, you know, this kind of attack would really be even worth bothering with. We said something there too, like to trust, right? So we're, we talked through sort of like systematic ways to prevent this, which seem to have varying degrees of user experience deg degradation and or as you said, Jerry, just pushing the, you know, the attack vector up or down the stack to different places that, you know, may have ill effects like clicking OK or just bothering the developer at some point or maybe even the user at some point with things that they're just not concerned with. The other is sort of like what you said there, Dominic, around trust. And even in your your readme, the statement on event stream compromise, you mentioned two strong solutions to this problem. One being, you know, paying the maintainers, but the additive to that was only depending upon modules that you know are definitely maintained. So I'd like to kind of get your idea of what definitely maintained means to you, because your version of that and my version of that and Jared's version of that may or may not be the same. And then point two you made was when you depend on something, you should take part in maintaining it. So maybe we can break down those levels of solutions where it's like, Rather than changing how the software only makes sense, reminding people to trust their dependency tree. But how do you do that? Yeah, well, I mean, part of the, a big part of the, the problem here from the social perspective is that the tooling basically assumed I was responsible for like this module and had like full control over the decisions made um, about it. So when you delegated to someone who had installed something that installed event stream, you didn't have control over who made the decisions about event stream. So I was able to like, like it was basically like, I was able to just transfer the right of access to event stream. And I like didn't, I didn't want to have the right to control event stream because like I had no interest and in, um, like I had no skin in the game. You abandoned it basically. Yeah. You, know, you wanted to be, you want to be out. It's sort of this really weird thing that only happens in software. Like there's no other like part of, like it's hard, really hard to make an analogy some other part of life where like a hobbyist ends up maintaining some kind of critical infrastructure while they don't want to. Yeah. 
it's like insane. What's funny is that is that um, maybe I can break this down a little bit. Is that you, you know, to the world own this thing? You personally have moved on from the concept, the paradigm, and the idea. Meanwhile, the rest of the world found it to be useful years later um, and made it widely useful in many different ways. It's been included in several different packages and very popular, you know, organizations. But meanwhile, the original creator, who's a, as described earlier, is a prolific open source developer, has since moved on not only from the project or desire to move on. And in some cases with some some angst because you had some pain with telling people that you were, were not going to be involved anymore. And you mentioned just sort of the, the, the mental tear on yourself there, but the fact that you've just moved on from it, but the world hasn't yet, you're still involved or at least somehow in the blame zone. Yeah. And I think it's also important to mention that module itself hadn't like changed at all in any significant way over that entire time. The po- it became popular for like what like originally was back when I thought it was a good idea. And so it hadn't really, like, I hadn't really been doing anything except for just like ignoring it and like reluctantly, occasionally responding to something or merging focus. Like basically, I, like it was just like a pain in the... So how do, you, how do you deal with that then, I guess? Maybe that's where we can camp on. Is like, you know, if this is now a thorn in your side, you've moved on from it. The world still feels it's popular. Two million downloads per week, according to Tidelift. Um, used by open source large open source projects like Angular, Mocha, Electron, and others, um, other commercial code bases from organizations like BBC News and Microsoft. So like clearly somebody had some value in this thing, but you want to move on. How do we collectively as open source look at this scenario and say, how can we allow maintainers to move on in ways that a, a project that is widely used or at least widely useful to many people or organizations how do we let them move on in a way that keeps the code base secure and doesn't allow something like this to happen? Like, do we hand this off to support organizations like Ruby Together might be, you know, in this case, it's a JavaScript NPM module. So maybe Ruby Together isn't the right one. But that <laughs> example there where you have sort of organizations that are intended to be sort of this catch all that are trusted or could be trusted or have some sort of vested interest in the future of an ecosystem. Yeah, like basically when something is new and exciting, like the thing is like all, most of this, most of the, I think most of the code on NPM was created by like, I mean, there's probably some big things that, that have people are working on for their job, but the vast majority of them are like small things that people have created in their own time or to fix their own little problem. And some of those things, such as event stream, became hugely dependent on. And the kind of like thought process and like skills and interest and motivation for creating those in the first place is very different from the thing that is required to maintain them in the long in the long term. So like once something has depended as like people are using are using something, then you don't really want to change it. Like it's better because it's like if you break anything, loads of people are going to be upset with you. Um, everyone's going to have a bad time. Like it's better just not to change anything at all. Just keep it like completely stable. And that's not really very fun. When you've created it in the first time, it was like a new idea that you were exploring and something worked really well. It's like, it's fun for a while, but by the time it's like uh, popular, like maintaining it as a job, and it's not like a job that you necessarily signed up for. Like it would be much better if it was maintained by someone who saw it as their job. So what you're saying is if somehow over these 700-ish modules you've created in your career, 
I think you mentioned roughly a hundred or so you you decided to abandon a couple months ago or a couple weeks ago. Three hundred. Three hundred. Okay. Thanks for correcting my math there. Um what you're saying, if I understand you correctly, is like if there was a way for you to be paid a fee that makes sense, a fair fee, to continue to be a security measure, a maintainer even, if that's necessary, to improve. Most of these are mature and stable and don't need to be changed much. You would stay on board as, as a, an on-the-hook person to provide maintenance and security. Sure, yeah. I mean, there's only like a, I mean, there were 300 modules, but only a small handful of them were really popular. And, and this, I think this is the other thing too, is the most popular ones um, are completely boring. Like the, the things that like I'm personally most proud of and the most interesting, you know, the most interesting problems are not really very popular at all. The things that have like millions of downloads, like my most downloaded module, which I actually still use is RC, which is a configuration loader. Like it just loads configuration file. And, you know, it's kind of like pop music. It's like to have the broadest appeal, it has to be like completely bland and uninteresting such that like the broadest spectrum of people can relate to it like everyone has to load a configuration file at um general purpose use yeah there's no exciting way to do it though i i agree with you completely i think that's why nadia ekbal's report about uh open source funding and sustainability was so well named roads and bridges because we're really talking about infrastructure and and the phenomenon i guess that we're actually seeing here is people accidentally create infrastructure they're not trying to, they're you know, solving problems they have, but it turns out those problems are general use and easy to pull in and easy to deploy. And over time it becomes infrastructure. And the fact is, is that nobody wants to work on a road or nobody wants to work on a bridge, right? Maybe building that bridge was fun and interesting problem for engineering, but it's just maintenance. And so we accidentally create these roads and bridges and they become public infrastructure or not public, but you know what I mean? Um, and then it's like, oh, I'm supposed to just work on this road for you for free. And so that's where the real rubber hits the road is like, we accidentally got here, right? You accidentally became the maintainer of a thing that you wrote seven years ago and people are still using today and you have zero interest in. And so that's where I think, I think that's why m many of us turn to, okay, now I'm ready for a financial compensation to take care of this because I also wouldn't maintain a road for free. Well, to that effect, too, you're, you don't have a lot of people coming by this perfectly fine bridge saying, you know what? I think I'm going to build a different bridge right next to it, slightly better because I want to. Like RC works, or in this case, EventStream works. Why would you come by and rebuild, yeah. as you mentioned? Like that's why it becomes accidental infrastructure. Yeah. Like, I mean, the metaphor falls apart enough. because we can clone and fork, you know, these things. Like you can't clone and fork a bridge, but right. to a certain degree, it, it's, it fits. Right. Anything to respond to that? Are you, do you agree with that analysis? Is that how you feel? Well, yeah, but the thing I'd, I'd like to stress is that when I talk about like paying the developers, like that's actually not my first choice. Like I like hobbyist style programming. I don't necessarily want that. I would, I would kind of rather people who like depend on that code for their job take over maintaining such code. My point is just that the incentives of like who's going to like, who's going to take responsibility for this should mm -hmm. be like it, who ends up actually feeling the impact. The problem here was that someone who wasn't interested in having that responsibility ended up with the responsibility. If people who actually like needed that thing ended up being the ones maintain, yeah. uh, maintaining that. And if I didn't even, like the other thing is like you kind of have, like you can give it away. You can you can hand things off to someone who will, will maintain it. 
but you're still responsible for figuring out who that was. And that's what I thought I was doing. When, and to speak um, it to a little bit to the in general, this system does work. I've seen many cases where uh, somebody writes a thing, an open source thing, and then uh, other businesses or you know uh, enterprises come to rely on it, and the original maintainers do not use it anymore. And then the businesses or the enterprises or whoever currently has a stake in it, they take over maintainership. And this is something that happens. So it's not like that. Pro- and, and I'm glad that that's, I agree with you. I think that's the best way for it to work. In lieu of that, like when that doesn't happen, pay the maintainer if you don't want to maintain it, but somebody has to. And I, I do I do see it working. So it's not like it's utterly broken. It's just that there are times where things fall through the cracks and then we have issues. Yeah, uh, a lot of people who were like upset about this were like, why couldn't you just like like depreciated it or just like stopped maintaining it and not giving it away? And the funny thing is like that actually was a decision that I was coming to and I actually made, I actually did that for like hundreds of modules like shortly after. But coming to that decision when I had like hundreds of modules that I didn't want wasn't like, it wasn't like a one at the time thing. I, it was like a bulk decision that involved like writing scripts to disown like all of these modules. Like I had was, it was like, um, like the tool, the t- current tools don't provide like a good way of like doing this in bulk. Like for example, so I had moved all of these modules off of uh, my NPM, but I hadn't archived them um, on GitHub yet. And I just simply hadn't got around to it. Like I felt that removing myself from them on NPM was sufficiently cathartic that I was like, oh, I'll just come back and do the like GitHub thing later. If I had if I had done that before it was reported, then they wouldn't have a they wouldn't have been able to post the issue on that thing. I don't know something else would have had to happen. This episode is brought to you by our friends at GoCD. GoCD is an open source continuous delivery server built by ThoughtWorks. Check them out at gocd.org or on GitHub at github.com slash gocd. GoCD provides continuous delivery out of the box with its built-in pipelines, advanced traceability, and value stream visualization. With GoCD, you can easily model, orchestrate, and visualize complex workflows from end to end with no problem. They support Kubernetes and modern infrastructure with elastic on-demand agents and cloud deployments. To learn more about GoCD, visit gocd.org slash changelog. It's free to use. They have professional support and enterprise add-ons available from ThoughtWorks. Once again, gocd.org slash changelog. And by our friends at Red Hat who produced the podcast Command Line Heroes. Today we're featuring a segment from Season 2, Episode 7, titled At Your Serverless. But now, of course, uh, all over the United States of America and all over the world, the Internet is revolutionizing our lives. It's 1998. Google just hired its first employee. And Vice President Al Gore is talking to the press. This technology is still in its infancy. When uh, President Bill Clinton and I came into the White House, there were only 50 sites. Uh, and look at it now. I got a bouquet of virtual flowers on my birthday. Uh. Okay, I can sense your eyebrow arching already. Why am I playing you some bit of 20-year-old internet history? It's because I want to remind you that the basics of the internet are still the same. Today, developers talk a lot about going serverless, 
which sounds like Al Gore's client-server internet just got trashed. And if we're not careful, we can abstract away so much infrastructure that we forget there are still servers out there doing their server thing. All right, learn more, listen, and subscribe to this awesome podcast at redhat.com slash heroes. Once again, redhat.com slash heroes. So we've talked about some technical things we can do. Some of us as a community, we talked about some, you know, better practices in terms of like consumers of these things is either hop in and help maintain, throw some cash at the problem, which is always nice, but hard to convince upper management to do. Um, As maintainers, Dominic, it sounds like you hit on some of the things, which is like, what is a good practice for abandoning a project? Um, And you hit on like, like you said, a few weeks after. Uh, you gave access uh, here, which, you know, in a, in a bit of serendipity, we've allowed the community to have this conversation and really to talk about these things. And so we can all together learn and realize what we should be doing about our projects that we're maintaining. Uh, one of the suggestions in our community Slack, I think it was Dan McLean brought it up in terms of like how it should work or what would be a good way of going about it is basically he says, I'm really starting to think that the model should be If you don't want to maintain it anymore, update the readme and let it be forked. Forks have to establish their own reputation. I would hate to have my name used maliciously at the same time. I don't feel that I need to keep maintaining something. And then he says, look at CanCanCan, which was a good example of a situation where there was CanCan. This is in the Ruby community. CanCan was maintained by Ryan Bates, created and maintained by Ryan Bates, and abandoned by him when he took his long hiatus from the internet. And then the community came around and created Can Can Can, established their own reputation by improving that, maintaining that, and eventually people switched over. So that seems to make sense to me in terms of like the passing of the torch. That seems like the hardest part because uh, in the in the situation where you're like I'm just done, but there's people who still depend upon it. How do we like actually pass the torch in a way that makes sense without you know throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, in, in hindsight, obviously, um, the solution is um, something like that. And uh, in this particular case, it was just really a matter of timing that meant that that hadn't happened. Like if Ride 9 had come to me like a, a month later, then I might have had been like, sorry, I abandoned that module. I can't give it to you. Which makes sense on, on GitHub side, but from on the NPM side, in terms of just the mechanics of that, if, if there's still hundreds of thousands of dependence, dependents out there with event stream in their package.json. How would they know it's abandoned? How would they be able to, you know, come back and see, okay, here's a new one. It's event stream dash some namespace, you know, of a new person. And then maybe eventually switch over. Are those things that are unsolved problems at this point? There is a deprecation option, but I've never, I never really felt like deprecating something like the code, like the code worked. It was fine. I hadn't even needed, like nothing really needed to change. So, it didn't really feel right to me to be like, you know, depreci- to depreciate because it was just like, just leaving it as it is, it's like, it's like fine. So like it's, it still worked. Like I hadn't really changed it. Um, it didn't need improvements. Well, let's, let me throw out a hypothetical then. So let's say that uh, event stream is out there on NPM and its current version and it's just fine. And then um, some sort of dependency of event stream has an issue and 
NPM security team detects it and goes out and says, okay, everybody who depends on this version of EventStream, you're going to need to bump your version up. And so EventStream needs to be patched, basically. Yeah. How, well, that's when that's, that's the case, right? That's when someone needs to fork it. There's other issues around that, though, is like uh, being able to adopt eventually an, an abandoned package name, too. So uh, assuming EventStream is a super cool name, it's abandoned, there's a way to flag it as abandoned. After a while, someone like that's the other, I guess, smaller, less concerning issue is that because this has been talked about when kick left pad and all that. Yeah, stuff what if I want to name my thing kick? Yeah. <laughs> then what do I do? Yeah, I guess uh, you have to sue somebody. <laughs> um, you know, you might want to take over the abandoned name or something like that. But I, that's what I was thinking. I was like, if you could just allow somebody. But that that means claiming and owning a name on NPM becomes far more valuable. Because if you claim and own it originally, even if it's not used, I mean, obviously NPM could do whatever they want to to circumvent those rules as well, but they, they kind of inch back into some sort of policing model of the community and what is and is not allowed, so they become more and more vulnerable to attacks of their choosing by just basically how they choose to, to run things. But if you were able to, in this case, uh, if there was a way for Dominic to say to NPM, hey, I want to abandon this. Let me attach an abandoned flag. This is what you're saying, Jer, where the dependency tree now knows that. So as I, uh, you know, ever use this package or dependency, then I'm somehow made aware like, hey, this this dependency you have in your tree has been flagged as abandoned on, on NPM. There may be something you want to look at here and or look for a fork or and or create your own fork and begin a new line of trust. And that what you're saying is that if that's the case, then this abandoned version is cemented in stone and frozen forever. So let's say I had been just be like, okay, I've abandoned uh, EventStream. Then like if that somehow prompted the users of EventStream, EventStream users to like update, then that would actually be a prime time for like the attacker to come along and be like, oh, I'm attaining a new fork of EventStream. It's, you know, I'll respond to things. I like use it, that sort of stuff. Then people like, you know, opt into to that. Right. Like it's, you could pull off the same kind of thing there. Yeah, like, you're right. Don't you think though, if that's the case though, that that would be seen as like a, hey, uh, the same model comes back into human choices, which is, you know, to part one of your statement in your, in your readme was basically like, you know, hey, trust, make sure you trust the maintainers. Right. So that would go back into rule one for you, at least based on your two strong solutions is like a human should trust this new fork and there should be reasons to. And that's brand new opt in a brand new line of trust and a brand new line of scrutinization versus this inherited one. Yeah. But continuing to use the abandoned code might actually be, be better unless an update is really needed. The funny thing is like compared to, you know, the, what last year, uh, the, the WannaCry worm, that was a a hack that only affected people that hadn't updated their code. Mm. This one was one that only affected people who had updated their code. Well, you're screwed either way then, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> update or don't update. You're <laughs> in the wrong. We're all in trouble. That's right. So this leads to a, a follow-up, just as an end user of, of dependency, like as a, as a developer then, you know, I've always looked at dependencies with two extremes. On the one extreme, you have dependency hell, where it's just like, pull it all in all the time, right? Like I, I don't write my own code. I'm just gluing my dependencies together to, to cobble something together. And the other side, we have like the pristine, not invented here syndrome, where it's like, I know every single line of code in this thing and I've written every single line of code. 
And those are kind of the two extreme angles you can take at dependencies. And I've always, I mean, I've always said it's a balance, it's a trade-off. You have to like make these decisions with as much information as possible. But the older I get, the more I'm starting to like err on the side of not invented here syndrome, because it seems like the trade-offs to having more dependencies is worse than the trade-offs of having to write some more code myself. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I have been accused more than a few times of uh, not inventing here. But, at the, you know, at the same time, there's a lot of things that I am satisfied with someone else's solution and have used that instead. You know? What are some of the heuristics for you? Like, what, what are the things that make you satisfied? Is it personal relationship with the, per, with the maintainer or uh, at least maybe a, a reputation of quality? Or is it your own inspection of their code? What makes you more comfortable than, than less comfortable? I mean, for, for things like I didn't create JavaScript or implement my own JavaScript or improve my JavaScript. But like there's, there's things like it's like that problem is too big to handle sure. when he has like a good thing that like does it. One is like if it's like a small thing that I could do, I would sort of and look for a whole bunch of options or something. I would evaluate them in terms of like, is this sufficiently compatible with my opinions? Like, would I do it the same way? Like, does this like make me really like mad or something like that? You know, this, there's some stuff like, um, that would just be like a pain in the butt to create myself, like time zones. <laughs> well, time zones are easy. What are you talking about? Just kidding. <laughs> it's like the bane of every programmer's existence mm -hmm. is time and time zones. That's right. Yeah, and it's especially worse if you live in New Zealand because you're, you're constantly um, you're dealing an edge case. with people. Yeah, um, people in other time zones. And the right. Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere one is fun too because you go in and out of daylight savings at different times. So between like say, you know, California and New Zealand, there's like four different possible differences where there's like, you can both be in daylight savings for a bit and then you're both out of it and then one of you is in the other one's out. So it's like, and so you change like how many hours you are apart, like multiple times throughout the year. Well, I don't even think I really understand daylight savings time. <laughs> there's times I think I understand it and then there's like, this is, then there's times I'm like, no, you, what you thought was daylight savings time is not. So I just, I just don't even know. I just know I'm where I'm at. And I just, this is my time right now. What's your time right now? It's one of the worst ideas. <laughs> oh man. And there's certain small precincts, uh, you know, geographic areas, which will not abide by it. Right. You know, like states or cities or countries. It's like, how do you, <sighs> do you even understand time and the earth's rotation and the things that actually calculate that and the things that, that have been established scientifically ages ago to make time time and us be in sync with what we think time really is it yeah it gets really deep and mm -hmm. time zones are political and political things change with new That's administrations right. and so there's yeah. yeah it's a it's a complete mess but well uh, one thing we haven't asked yet and we 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 did mention at the top dominic that it was a lot of conversation this has been a a, a bit the big topic of the week uh, around these parts and so I think that's a benefit. I think it's a good thing. I'm curious about you personally. It sounds like you've you've taken it all pretty well, but no doubt there were some people that were mad or were criticizing what you did. Why couldn't he have just done this? Why did he do that? Curious what your overall uh, feelings are with regard to the way the community has received this, the way it's gone. You know, have you gotten a lot of backlash? Do you feel attacked? Do you feel loved? How do you feel? I received many like personal messages of support from like other um like old friends and like other open source developers and sometimes like random strangers who had admired my work and stuff like this so i really felt quite boosted overall from that you know and that that certainly gave me the confidence to like use this to like draw attention to 
what I feel is the the plight of the open source developer and like what are like the systematic ways that something like this can be like approached and addressed. And I think the way that I've kind of like been very determined to like shirk responsibility for actually like adding the thing, like actually helped mm-hmm. a lot there because it, it made all the people who were like thought I should, you know, apologize or something. It made them like way more upset. <laughs> You were very nonchalant about it all, yeah. which to me was refreshing because I could tell that you were kind of cool, calm and collected about it. And just like this situation, you know, the conversation around, you know, this being a fun project for you. Like this was just a thing that was fun. It was no longer fun. And that's what you said in in your statement is if it's not fun anymore, you get literally nothing for maintaining a popular package. That's just the cold, hard facts. You can't be or act guilty if you're not guilty, right? If you don't have a guilty conscience in the scheme of this, then you're not going to run around acting guilty or feeling guilty. Yeah. Yeah. And I also knew that like, we're kind of like weird to, you know, people who like enjoy programming for fun, but there's still quite a few of us um, out there and like many of them uh, and lots of them, are my friends. So I felt like I was, you know, I was speaking for these people. As, uh, as Brett Cannon said in that recent episode, Jared, I forget which number it is. Help me out if you can, but, you know, open source maintainers own nothing. I believe that's somewhat a direct quote. Correct me if I'm wrong. We can pull up the transcripts and confirm that. But just basically like, you know, they, they've maintainers of projects haven't signed on for a we'll maintain this. We'll be responsible for everything in this forever. It, it's in their good interest and in their heartfelt interest to create an, an open source in the first place. And it's your choice to use it. So they owe you nothing. The other thing I want to say is like on one level, like creating open source is like fun, like challenging, interesting technical problems, but also the social side of it. For, for the most part, you're just like solving problems with friends and helping each other out. And no one is like the boss of anyone. So if you want to like get things done, you can persuade people. And I sometimes people get wound up and like there's strong emotions because like it's things that people feel strongly about. But yeah. on the whole, it's a very um, rewarding kind of like mode of interaction and i wish that like more of life gave you the the ability to like affect change on things that affect you like you get an open source like i think that's a big part of like why i've continued to do it for like you know, the best part of a decade absolutely and dominic we just want to say thank you for all the the work that you have done no doubt you've brought lots of value to lots of people countless people around the world that you've never even met and the beauty of open source all these modules on npm the work that you're doing in the javascript community hey we definitely want to get you back to talk about scuttlebutt and the interesting stuff there talk about hacking with your friends this seems like a very cool kind of offline social networking thing happening uh which is very much in the spirit of what we like to cover on the changelog so uh, definitely wanted to have you back but uh we're happy to have you we're, we're glad you joined us especially on short notice to talk about this situation any last words from you uh with regard to open uh, event stream or what's happened or Anything else you'd like to say to the open source community before we let you go? Yeah, I think despite all this, I think open source is like a great idea and we need more of it and more and more sharing, not less. If we let things like this make us too suspicious of each other to to like share and collaborate, then um, the terrorists win and that would be worse than being hacked occasionally. I think that's a perfect note to end on right there. Yeah. Dominic, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. 
right, that's it for this week's episode of The Changelog. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoy the show, if you got any value from it, do us a favor. Go into iTunes or Apple Podcasts, rate the show, review it. It helps us get ranked up inside those indexes so more people find the show. If you're using Overcast, go ahead and favorite it. And of course, tweet a link to a friend or share it wherever you might want to. Huge thanks to our sponsors, Rollbar, Linode, GoCD, and Red Hat's Command Line Heroes. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we're able to move fast and fix things here at ChangeLaw because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. We trust Leno because they're fast. They keep it simple. Check them out at leno.com slash changelog. Today's show is hosted by myself, Adam Stukoviak, and Jared Santo. Editing, mixing, and mastering was done by Tim Smith. And the music is done by the ever-awesome Breakmaster Cylinder. If you want to hear more episodes like this, subscribe to our master feed at changelog.com slash master or go into your podcast app and search for Changelog Master. You'll find it. Subscribe, get all of our shows as well as some extras that only hit the master feed. Once again, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.